Welcome to American Ambassadors Events, the podcast that allows listeners to sit in on otherwise exclusive events hosted by the Council of American Ambassadors. This episode features a presentation on Russia and Ukraine by Dr. Anders Aslan at the Council's Contentious Neighbors Spring Conference on May 7, 2019. This session was moderated by CAA member Todd Cedric. Good morning, Excellencies. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce uh, Professor Anders Aslund. Uh, he's a senior fellow. He's a Swedish economist and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And by the way, I commend anybody who's interested in transatlantic relationships in particular to affiliate with the Atlantic Council. It's an excellent organization. He also is chairman of the International Advisory Council at the Center for Social and Economic Research. And Professor Aslund's specialty is the transition from centrally planned economy to market economy. So as you all might imagine, the demand for his talents has been very high around the world. Uh, in particular, he served as uh, economic advisor to the governments of Kyrgyzstan, Russia, and Ukraine, and from 2003 was director of the Russian and Eurasian program at the Carnegie uh, Endowment for International Peace. He has also worked with uh, most of the Baltic countries on economic policy, and it's a particular pleasure to introduce him today to talk about Russia and um, Ukraine. Uh, of course, in Ukraine we have this interesting uh, phenomenon of uh, a comedian who played the president on TV, who is now president. Uh, so I look forward to hearing uh, the professor's uh, um, perspective on that. And the other reason why it's particularly, uh, it's particularly great that he's able to join us today is he's, he's coming out with a new book today, uh, which is going to be debuted at the Atlantic Council at 4 o'clock this afternoon, but we get the first uh, crack at uh, hearing about it, and it's about a different kind of transition. This is about, uh, the, the book is called Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. So that's a little bit different kind of transition than the one from a centralized economy to a planned economy to a market economy. So with that, uh, Professor, we're very grateful to have you join us today. Thank you. Please join me in welcoming Professor Asman. Thank you very much, uh, Ambassador. And Excellencies, it's a pleasure to be here today. And uh, especially since I happen to publish this book, uh, Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy, uh, uh, today. And um, if you look upon Russia under Putin, it, there are two big, sharp contrasts. During Putin's first nine years, economic growth was on average 7% a year. During his following 10 years, average growth has been 1% a year. So these are two sharp contrasts. And the big question is, what went wrong? And the short of it is that uh, uh, Putin consolidated power. I think that we are seeing something similar, for example, in Turkey. Uh, Turkey was never as good as it was during Erdogan's first term. Russia was never as good as it was during Vladimir Putin's first term. So my fundamental thesis is that uh, Putin combines two features. 
And that is secret police. He loves no organization as much as the KGB, which says a lot about a person. And uh, then he grew up in his uh, uh, career in organized crime uh, in the early 90s in St. Petersburg. At that time, St. Petersburg was called, in Russia, Criminal Peter. Peter short for St. Petersburg, uh, because uh, it was uh, uh, also compared with Chicago during Prohibition. This was the type of uh, environment that Putin uh, grew up in. Uh, as president, uh, I would argue that Putin has been very clever when it comes to political power. Uh, <clears throat> in Davos, uh, in uh, 2000, one month after Putin had come to power, uh, the US uh, journalist uh, Trudy Rubin posed the question to a panel of Russians, who is Mr. Putin? Wisely, nobody answered, because at that time, Putin was everything to every person which is exactly what you should be uh, when you are consolidating power. But if we now look upon Putin's uh, 19 years in the, uh, power, oh, sorry, 20, uh, 19 years in power, he uh, has moved very systematically. In the first period, uh, he gained control of the state, uh, most of all, uh, the security services, state finances, but also the judiciary. In the second term, he took control over the big state companies and put his loyalists as uh, heads of them. Uh, in the third term, he did something very different. He let uh, his friends rob the state companies and make massive fortunes in this fashion. And uh, <clears throat> At present, people talk about manual management. Putin does what he wants. There is no obvious uh, constraint uh, to, to his uh, uh, powers. So uh, what has Putin positively accomplished? Putin came to power soon after the Russian financial crash of uh, August 98. And the lesson he clearly drew from that episode was that uh, you have to maintain financial stability in order to be uh, sovereign and stay in power. So uh, Russia has the, an extraordinarily strong macro, uh, macroeconomic policy. The international reserves are massive, $490 billion. The public debt is only 12% of GDP. The state budget is more or less in balance. Inflation, 5%. Unemployment, 4.8%. All those numbers are good. But what is not so good, as I already mentioned, it is that there is no economic growth. Putin does not care about economic growth. I think that the numbers that tells you the most about what Putin is really about, it is um, the World Bank ease of doing business ranking, where Russia has under Putin uh, risen from 120th place to 31st place. So Putin wants, 
officials to obey him. That's important. That's essentially what this uh, index uh, shows. But at the same time, Russia is ranked 138 on the Corruption Perception Index by Transparency International. So then you wonder why? Because Putin wants to make money, and he wants his friends to make money, and that's corruption. So Russia is today a captured state, a state captured by the elite. And this elite are not thinking of uh, the country, but they are uh, thinking about uh, themselves. <clears throat> and what I'm doing uh, in this uh, new book of mine is that I'm looking upon what uh, the two recent um, bills about Russia sanctions are asking. How big is Putin's net wealth? And I'll tell you how I've looked upon it. The funny thing is that we know much more about what is happening in the Russian economy in terms of enrichment than we know about what is happening outside of Russia. So if we start, <clears throat> there is a pioneering study from 2008 by two opposition politicians, Boris Nemtsov, who was later murdered, and Vladimir Milov, both good friends of mine. And they assessed that Putin and his friends, in the course of four years, 2004 to 2007, took out $60 billion from Gazprom. That's real money. So you wonder, of course, how did they do it? Essentially in three ways. Uh, first, state procurement, privileged state procurement. That's why Russia is building so many pipelines not because it needs the pipelines, but that Putin friends need the money from the pipelines. Because they have then no bid contracts that are uh, twice as uh, expensive as they uh, should be. Another way is uh, selling off assets, asset stripping. Uh, media and uh, finance assets uh, of uh, Gazprom. And uh, then a little bit of stock manipulation. When they change the ownership, it appears that Putin happened to get 6% of Gazprom as a bonus. So in this way, they have uh, uh, taken money, and this has continued. So uh, you can say that Gazprom is uh, uh, Putin's ATM machine. When he needs a little bit of money, he takes a little bit of gas money. And there are a few other state companies that function in a similar uh, way. So my assessment is that since 2006, when Putin and his friends really got the machine going, they've taken out 15 to 25 billion dollars a year. If you add it up, it, uh, it becomes uh, 200 to 320 billion dollars. From various information we have, there's reason to believe that about half of it belongs to Putin. So my assessment of Putin's private wealth is 100 to 160 billion dollars. Then total billion, billion, which would easily make him the richest man in the world, <clears throat> or in, in competition with uh, Jeff Bezos now, I presume. So. Uh, what do you do with this money? 
The requirement for this kind of money is that you have anonymous ownership, which you have by and large in Anglo-American constituencies, that you have good rule of law, and that you have deep financial markets. Uh, traditionally, money goes out mainly through Cyprus, uh, then to British Virgin Islands, uh, to Cayman Islands, and then essentially to Wilmington, Delaware, or London. So in each place, they get a number of additional shell companies. Serious Russian money is uh, covered by 20 to 30 shell companies. And uh, this, what you do with the money after that, Cayman Islands is the second biggest investor in US securities, according to the US Treasury, with $1.7 trillion. This is anonymous money. Much of it is obviously American. Much of it is legal. But we have no idea what it is. So what is coming now, as you're surely aware here, in the discussion in Washington, is an ever stronger demand for revelation of the ultimate beneficiary owners. So this is becoming, or has become, a national security question. There's a lot of money floating around that we don't know. The total Russian private money, which is relatively easy to assess because uh, we see how much the net capital outflow is on central bank and IMF statistics, is at least $800 billion. This is anonymous money that is private, that is floating around. It's not state money. It's not the uh, central bank reserves. And this is an enormous power. If you think of, even <coughs> in the US, a total election cycle costs about $5 billion. What is that in comparison with $800 billion? And if you look upon where the money goes, uh, after the financial crash in Cyprus in 2013, uh, the IMF carried out a forensic analysis, and they only found $14 billion of direct Russian investment in Cyprus. Because Cyprus is a small island, and there's not much you can invest in. Uh, and then you can compare with the very much smaller islands in uh, the Caribbean. So what you need is serious matters, like real estate. London real estate is probably the biggest concentration. And uh, Miami and New York are good uh, competitors, which are more anonymous since in London you normally own a house. In uh, Miami and uh, New York you normally own uh, an apartment. <clears throat> so this is uh, making it then very important to um, uh, get um, uh, <clears throat> to get real knowledge about the real owners. Interestingly, now here in Washington, the biggest lobbyists for open ownership are the banks, because the banks are fed up with paying uh, fines for money laundering uh, for people that they don't know, or paying. Uh, lots of money all the time for compliance. They want to reduce the compliance costs. So therefore, the banks are the main force uh, now on the hill in favor of uh, open ownership. 
So then, what should we expect from Putin in the future? I've sort of already said it. You don't change such a system. We should not expect uh, any uh, Im improvement, because Russia is an authoritarian kleptocracy, and such a system would be destabilized if uh, there were serious political or economic reforms. Therefore, Putin cares about macroeconomic stability, but not really about economic uh, gr growth. So what do you do then? If you have little bread, you need more circus. What is circus? The Russian expression runs small, victorious wars. It comes from 1904, when the Russia-Japanese war that came out of it was not very successful, and certainly not small. So uh, we have now seen a few of them. Putin came to power very much through the war in Chechnya in 1999. Uh, in 2008, he had a, a successful five-day uh, war in Georgia, which took him to his highest popularity ever at 88%. And then in March 2014, he repeated that uh, success with the annexation of Crimea. After that, he has not been equally successful because uh, <clears throat> the war in eastern Ukraine has neither been small nor successful, and certainly not popular. Uh, Russians don't really care about the war in Syria, so that has not given him a kick. And this is what we are now, who deal with Russia, asking about uh, uh, all the time. What will Putin do next? We see a little bit in here and there in Africa. Uh, certainly something in Venezuela, but it's difficult to see anything that uh, can really uh, 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 take off. And uh, what should the West do? I've already said it. The main thing is to open up ownership and expose Putin's uh, wealth. And therefore, we see in this two sanctions bill, uh, Deter and Daska, as they are uh, abbreviated, both of them call for uh, US intelligence agencies to really reveal Putin's net wealth. What I've given you is an assessment from what we can see from the Russian side. I can't see how large it is uh, on the other side, but we have pieces of it. So, for example, <clears throat> uh, Putin's closest friends have, according to Forbes, a wealth of $26 billion, but this is what they have in Russia, not what they have in uh, abroad. Four of his childhood friends have uh, each more than half a billion dollars. You need, you need to take care of your childhood friends. There are certain suspicions that this money really belongs to Putin. In particular, in the Panama paper, we have a, a cellist, Sergei Roldukin, one of Putin's closest friends, who happened to have more than $2 billion. And this is then paid into, for example, one kind businessman paid $259 million for this cellist services. A state bank gave him $650 million in a loan from their subsidiary in Cyprus, which is, of course, not meant to be paid back. And then, just in case, there are five uh, relatives of Putin who each hold more than one, half a billion dollars.
so Putin has really enriched his cousins. This is a man who thinks of family. <clears throat> so I can't see that much can happen. And unfortunately, my sad answer is that we need to keep up uh, our, uh, our guard. So let me then move from a sad chapter of Russia under Putin to the exciting chapter of uh, Ukraine under uh, uh, president-elect uh, <coughs> Volodymyr Zelensky. I should say I'm in uh, Ukraine literally every month because I'm a member of the supervisory board of the Ukrainian state railroads, uh, an old Soviet enterprise with 264,000 employees. So <coughs> I see a lot of, of uh, Ukraine. Uh, I would strongly recommend you to see a bit of this uh, Servant of the People, which is available on Netflix. This uh, uh, series uh, that uh, Zelensky uh, uh, did, and uh, it's long, so you perhaps don't want to see all of it. But it tells you so much about Ukraine. And while it's uh, funny, it actually describes the reality. So the start of the series is that uh, uh, there is a, a, a cortege of uh, black cars coming to a, a school teacher, a high school teacher, and say, Mr. President. And uh, he has just been elected to a president. Why? Because uh, this high school teacher, who uh, is too poor to keep his wife, so she divorces him and therefore moves back into to his parents, he uh, goes on a rant in the classroom when uh, uh, most of the kids have left, and somebody uh, it makes a video of his rants about corruption and how awful everything is in Ukraine and puts it on YouTube. And thanks to this, uh, he becomes very famous in Ukraine. And uh, his 10th uh, uh, grade children, they uh, crowdfund for him so that he can register as a candidate without knowing it, uh, as a presidential candidate. And in this way, he wins the election. And this is very much how Zelensky won. So you can say that Zelensky's vote is a vote against the old establishment, the oligarchy. President Parashenko was very much an oligarch who did all kinds of dirty business as president. And while this is not much written about abroad, all the Ukrainians see it. So his business uh, technique was very much to make joint ventures with all the big businessmen in the big, uh, different regions, and uh, very many. And uh, the, the whole idea of the business was monopoly, that you set the prices yourself. And uh, uh, as president, he could uh, very much uh, uh, control that. So people voted against that, those who voted for Zelensky. Then you wonder who voted for Parashenko. Essentially, the one quarter who, in Ukraine who are hardcore Ukrainian nationalists. 
that we have seen in many elections that there is one quarter of a population that are hardcore nationalists, and they were afraid of Zelensky, who's a Russia speaker, and who is um, a Jew. So Ukraine today has a president-elect who's a Jew, and the prime minister who's a Jew. And they uh, recognize themselves as Jews. So this is uh, the only country, apart from Israel, where that is currently the case, which shows very much how tolerant and open uh, Ukraine is. But let me return to the film. So here, uh, what is the problem in Ukraine? As it presented in the film, it's three oligarchs who controls everything. So after Zelensky, as the, in the film, has been elected president, he first tries to have an open competition for the top job that he can appoint. And it turns out that his prime minister, who he cannot sack because he's uh, dependent of the parliament, controls it all. So then he falls back on the basic model, his childhood friends. So he takes, invites five friends from his uh, graduating class in high school to take the top jobs. But the oligarchs are not passive. So they instantly bribe them all. And afterwards, one sees the three big oligarchs who say, this crowd was much cheaper than the previous one. They cost only $50 million. And uh, uh, the president gets wind of this. So he organizes a press conference and says that I told them to ask for these bribes, because now we will put all this money into the treasury. And after many tours, the oligarchs don't quite like it, so they have him impeached and put into prison. And then he becomes re-elected. So on and on like this, the film goes, and then it ends with the president speaking at the funeral of who obviously is um, President Parashenko. And it goes like this. In 2007, he uh, told us uh, uh, how he wanted to improve the economy. In 2014, he told us how he would improve the economy. There were so many other promises that he could make to us. But in the end, he did the best he could possibly do for us. He died. <laughs> so the question now is whether Zelensky as president will be able to do better, or if it uh, uh, will be very difficult for him. So uh, this will be a very interesting uh, matter to follow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're a little bit behind schedule, but I think we have time for a few questions. Yes, sir. I read in the newspaper that one of the sequences in this film series that you're referring to is after he was re-elected president, he went to the parliament with a submachine gun and began shooting members of the parliament. Um, is, is that correct? It's a dream scene. I see. So this is his fantasy, what he hopes to do. <laughs> no more questions. Pastor Tom. I've always thought uh, former Colonel Putin of the KGB was a nasty Cold War bad guy politically. But what you've taught us is he's really a, 
awful, awful human being, uh, a, a crook, a stealer, a bandit. Why does the great president of the United States of America see him smile on the telephone and think he's a wonderful human being, sir? I would leave that uh, question to the president. <laughs> I can only guess. Um, it, it, it appears to me in every way as if uh, President Trump uh, is either getting money or uh, is uh, interested in getting money from uh, 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 President Putin. I don't believe that it's extortion because he's so enthusiastic. You're not enthusiastic about the person who's extorted. And in the steel dossier, there is a substantial discussion about uh, uh, <clears throat> Igor Sechin, uh, the head of Rosneft, wanted to give uh, a share of 19.5% of Rosneft, uh, $11 billion, to uh, President uh, Trump if he um, delivers uh, uh, on sanctions. Uh, which he has not done, but uh, uh, the, this privatization did take place, and uh, these $11 billion of shares are hidden deep down in many layers of shell companies in Cayman Islands. Well, Ambassador Robinson and Ambassador Bernstein. You can't mention uh, Ukraine <laughs> without thinking of Crimea. I want to ask you about the Crimea. The, the Russian fleet has been there for years. Um, and many people think that uh, if there had been a, uh, a legitimate um, referendum, <clears throat> that the majority of the people in the Crimea would have voted with Russia. What's your opinion? There was an opinion poll done, I think, in January 2014, and it had a slight majority for Ukraine. So. Uh, uh, it was close to 50-50 in reality. Uh, if you look up on the population in Crimea, it's, uh, uh, one big part is retired Russian officers, uh, military around Sevastopol, and that's a substantial part. 12% uh, Crimean Tatars, and they are actually the hardcore Russian, uh, Ukrainian uh, nationalists. And then the rest are Russians and Ukrainians who don't really uh, care too, uh, too much about uh, uh, either. So for Russians, Crimea was the Soviet holiday paradise lost. So it's uh, people dream about their lost youth when thinking of, uh, of uh, uh, Crimea. It's not that it's... Uh, uh, economically important to Russia. Militarily, it is important. Sevastopol is the big natural port in, uh, in the Black Sea. And it's Admiral Nakhimov who said in the 19th century uh, that uh, who controls Sevastopol controls the Black Sea. And that is uh, uh, pretty close uh, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to reality. In the only uh, uh, votes that have held on this was in December 91, when 54% of uh, uh, Simferopol, the capital, voted for uh, belonging to Ukraine, and 57% of the rest of, of uh, uh, Crimea. Thank you. The former head of Mossad told me that Putin was the richest man in the world with $225 billion in every uh, company and 
and around the world that uh, is owned by an oligarch he owns 25% of. What my question is, what happened to the man that filled in for him so uh, when he had to step down as president? And could he do the same thing again? Could he uh, have someone else step in and then run again uh, for a second? Well, as uh, we saw, Dmitry Medvedev uh, did step in. And I think that one reason why Putin did not allow it uh, to continue was that Dmitry Medvedev, uh, uh, half a year before Putin decided that he needed to come back, uh, started to change the enterprise boards, the state enterprise boards. And this Putin considered his, his uh, a, a, a privilege. So Putin has really transformed the state enterprise uh, companies so that they obey him and not, uh, not the state. And he couldn't care less about the economic results. So if you take Gazprom, uh, the jewel in the crown, uh, it was worth uh, at the peak in May 2008, uh, $369 billion on the L London Stock Exchange. Today it's $60 billion. $310 billion less, but who cares, since the money is made on procurement and on asset stripping, and that's what investors do. So Putin has transformed several of these companies, in effect, to non-governmental organizations that he controls. I don't think that Putin will make the mistake to leave again. Uh, so, so even a person who's as weak as uh, Medvedev, I should say about uh, uh, current uh, Prime Minister Medvedev, mm -hmm. the opposition politician Alexei Navalny has made a wonderful film, 45-minute film about him, how he has uh, taken $1.2 billion only in, uh, in bribes, and who has paid the bribes and what they have been devoted to. So you see uh, two grand vineyards, one in Tuscany and uh, six uh, uh, mansions in various places in R Russia that then belong to non-governmental organizations that are controlled by uh, Prime Minister Medvedev and his uh, wife. And then you wonder what happens after this. And the answer is nothing. So the people who made the film are not being prosecuted. Russia is not that tough. You can still see this uh, YouTube film, I can strongly recommend it, uh, with English subtitles, and 29 million people have downloaded it. So uh, this is uh, the best report about how uh, uh, Russia really functions. So the funny thing about Russia is that it's so open. Uh, currently, there are 250 uh, political prisoners in Russia, which is not much if you compare with, with Turkey, for example. So, uh, the name of the name of the movie is. On Vamni Dimon, he is not Dimon with you, but you can just uh, say Medvedev uh, video, and you will get it. <laughs> Ambassador Louise Oliver, and then Ambassador Gildenhorn. Uh, you've mentioned Gazprom a couple of times. Could you comment on the uh, deal with Germany and the pipeline? The basic uh, strategy that Putin and Gazprom has is you buy important people. So Gerhard Schröder 
is the key person. His official pay as a chairman of Rosneft is $600,000. And he's also chairman of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, Nord Stream 1. Uh, he made that decision that it could uh, be built just before he <coughs> left as chancellor, after he had lost uh, the German election. And then immediately afterwards, he became chairman. So by any standard, this is a corrupt deal. Legal, it's not. But morally, uh, it is. And it's also a number of other politicians who have been bought. And this is, uh, since they are retired politicians, this is perfectly illegal that uh, they have uh, taken over. And um, as it looks today, Schroeder pretty much controls the uh, Social Democratic Party when it comes to uh, Russia policy, which I found extraordinary. For reasons I don't understand, the Christian Social Union is also strongly in favor of uh, Russia and the, the Bavarian Party. And then uh, in the Christian Democratic Union, there are problems. So that there are some people who, uh, for some reason, support uh, Russia. And the consequence is that uh, Chancellor Merkel has a very tight position. She has decided to push ahead with the Russia sanctions uh, for Ukraine. She's really cared about Ukraine's uh, uh, security. And then you have to give up something. So she has given up uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, to the Social Democrats and CSU, her coalition partners, so that they are with her on the uh, sanctions on Russia. Ambassador Gillenhorn. Having spent time in the Baltic countries, I want your opinion. Of how, how nervous should the Baltic countries be? My late friend Boris Nemtsov uh, always said about Putin, Putin believes in Article 5. And it was not necessary to say that it was from, uh, from the NATO treaty, that uh, this is something that uh, Putin respects. I don't think that the Baltic countries should be very nervous. Uh, because, um, first of all, they are very nervous, uh, which is a good thing, because then you keep up your security. And uh, they have handled all uh, the risk. NATO is really a guarantee. Uh, Putin is, um, if, uh, militarily now, uh, we talk about the Gerasimov doctrine, which is uh, not to spend too much on warfare, use all kinds of hybrid warfare, disinformation, um, uh, cyber, uh, uh, social networks, finance, uh, uh, corruption, uh, whatever, uh, assassinations, but not real heavy warfare. So, and that would be needed in the, uh, uh, the, the Baltics. Uh, so therefore, I don't think it would be a good idea from Putin's uh, point of view uh, to uh, hit on, the, on the, the Balkans. Instead, we should be worried about the gray zones. Uh, the obvious are Georgia, uh, Ukraine, Moldova. Uh, others are the non-EU <coughs> countries in the Balkans and then uh, further afar in the, the Middle East and Africa. Bill, did you have a question? Yeah, uh, Ambassador Eco. To come back to Ukraine for a minute, uh, Ambassador Robinson asked the question earlier, which you accurately answered about the polling in Crimea. I serve on the board of IFAS. We did the poll in November before the Russian invasion, and, and it was, as I recall, 
almost 50-50. It was 52% favored closer political ties to Russia, 48%, or the other way around, 48% to the West. But in the eastern part of Ukraine, in the Donbas region, 70% favored closer political ties to the West, 30% favored closer political ties to Russia, was sort of how it was worded. Now, Russia's taken over that area, or their proxies, the people who felt that, who wanted closer ties to the West have moved into the western part of Ukraine, in effect, as refugees. What are the chances that we will ever get uh, the Russians out of that part of Ukraine? Or the Russian, you know, proxies? Yeah, let me take first, uh, Crimea, everybody thinks this is in the long haul. This is like the Baltics in the Soviet Union. We don't accept it but uh, we don't expect anything to happen. Uh, and Russia has fully taken over Crimea. It is, an, so to say, in legal standards, normal Rus part of Russia. They get uh, have the same salaries and pensions and so forth as people have in the state sector in, in the rest of uh, Russia. Uh, occupied Donbass is a hellhole. Uh, so uh, nothing functions. The population, we don't really know how many, uh, uh, because it's not uh, two regions, but parts of two regions that have taken over. And uh, it was something like four and a half to five million. Now it's half the population have fled, two thirds to Ukraine, one third uh, uh, to, to Russia. The people who remain are basically pensioners who have nowhere else to go and they have uh, free housing uh, there. And uh, then it is uh, criminals and uh, the fighters. So probably 30,000 uh, are local fighters there. You can say for young men and women in Donbass, there's almost only one prof profession, to be a fighter. And now President Putin, immediately after the Zelensky victory, came out with um, uh, the decree that uh, people in occupied Donbass would get uh, facilitated uh, <clears throat> uh, passport applications so that they can get Russian passports and citizenships, which means for them that there's no reason to stay in this uh, hellhole. So I think that in this way he will empty the military forces of uh, DNR and LNR. Uh, and immediately there were queues to get passports in, uh, in uh, the Donetsk area. So I think that Putin shot himself in the foot with this because uh, the Russian military are not uh, ready to, uh, to stay there uh, themselves. And uh, the economic activity is, uh, is minimal. All the big production has stopped. The big companies have been uh, confiscated. And uh, perhaps 30% of uh, economic activity or so is uh, active. So it's uh, sort of elementary retail trade and um, food processing that functions, not the heavy industry. There's a little bit of coal that is uh, uh, extracted. But think of uh, uh, Donbass. This is one of the real um, rust belts of the world. So it's uh, old steel works, uh, 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 coal mines, iron ore mines, uh, massive um, 
pollution was the case. I mean, now the industry has stopped, so there's not so much pollution uh, any, any longer. But uh, this is not an attractive area. So if you ask uh, Ukrainian politicians privately, you want to have Donbass back, occupy Donbass back, I say. Uh, don't cite me on it, they say, but I don't. I would not say so publicly. And therefore, people don't want. And uh, the Minister for Social Affairs uh, in uh, Ukraine now, uh, a few days ago, <coughs> happened to call the people in occupied Donbass scum, which is, of course, not very diplomatic, but it's reflective of the actual mood in, uh, in, in, in Kiev. So therefore, the Ukrainians don't want to get it back, and the Russians don't want to pay for it. It's not attractive, and it's, it's very messy, and whatever happens would be very costly. So think of Detroit or something like that. Uh, this is the kind of, uh, of a problem. And the, the enterprises are confiscated and stand still. Do you have just one more question? I just had a quick question about uh, Putin's popularity. We look at it and say, how could this kleptocrat be popular? In our terms, he would be, you know, uh, would not be according to our values. But the Russian people like a strong central authority figure. They like someone who has swagger on the world stage. And so there seems to be this trade-off. Um, do the uh, elections there have integrity and what, is the, what are the trends in his popularity, or is the slow growth finally going to catch up with him, do you think? Uh, his popularity, according to the Levada Center Independent Opinion Post, has fallen from 88 to 66 percent, which is, of course, still very high. But then if you take uh, another opinion poll, which is close to uh, Kremlin, there he has about 50 percent popularity. I don't know why that is not uh, more quoted. And uh, a, a third opinion poll uh, <clears throat> organization, which is the closest to the Kremlin, has his trust level at 33 percent. So I think that uh, this is too little uh, for Putin. If I were asked by a pollster in Russia, what do I think about Putin, I would, of course, say that I love him, because that would be the only rational answer, <coughs> because you can never know if, uh, it's, um, if, if, if somebody working for the security forces yeah. or not. But you can say that the hardcore liberal constituency in Russia, it's about 10%. It's not more. We should not uh, uh, exaggerate it. But it's all the others that are important. Well, let me put in one more plug for his book, which is called Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracies, coming out today at Yale University Press. If you, any of you have time, 4 o'clock at the Atlantic Council. So, uh, Dr. Hassan, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. That was Dr. Anders Asland at the Council of American Ambassadors Contentious Neighbors Conference. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to American Ambassadors events on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review.